All rise. Court is now in session. A verdict in this case has already been decided, but I'd like to examine this case together. And then I would like you to ask yourself, what if? What if this person really is innocent? What if the jury got it wrong? Could this crime have occurred as the state said it did? I suppose it's possible, but isn't it also possible that this is one of the many wrongful convictions throughout the United States? Prepare yourself to be amazed, disappointed, and perhaps outraged at what you're about to hear. I'm Deborah Fulton, Case Review Manager for Wrongful Convictions News, and I would like to present to you some of the factors used to obtain a guilty verdict, and then you can decide if you would vote to convict or acquit. In last month's episode, I spoke about the disappearance of Lacey Peterson. I discussed that her husband, Scott, was immediately identified as a suspect because of his demeanor and his lies, as well as the fact that he had a mistress, who really wasn't a mistress at all, since they only hooked up four times. And you may recall that Amber seemed to be the pursuer, and Scott didn't seem to be that into her, especially enough to kill his wife. I also talked about how the media played a major role in this conviction. So, on the day of Lacey's disappearance, December 24th, Scott did allow police to search his house. However, when police asked to do so again two days later, Scott told them he wanted to consult his attorney before he signed the search consent form. He wasn't refusing to consent to the search or to sign the form. He just wanted his attorney to read the document first. Scott's attorney didn't act fast enough, so police issued a search warrant. Detective John Bueller from the Modesto Police Department stated that the search warrant wasn't so much to search for evidence as it was to gauge Scott's reaction to that warrant. In his opinion, since Scott didn't grant them permission, he must have something to hide. The search warrant is not so much for us to look for evidence. It was partly to do with Scott, to gauge Scott's behavior and his demeanor with us. And so whenever we do a search warrant, we're going to ask for permission to search the house from the homeowner. In Scott's case, he didn't give us permission to, to do the search. If the guy has nothing to hide, to me, that's a red flag. But that wasn't the full truth. Scott did give them permission on the 24th and was simply asking to allow his attorney to read the consent form on the 26th. It was just one more thing to add to their list of reasons that Scott was guilty. It was another instance where they said, if you have nothing to hide, why not consent to the search? Well, he did on the day of her disappearance. And again, he wasn't denying a search the second time. He was just asking a legal expert to read what he was signing. Either way, there was no evidence found at all during any of the searches. Police also confiscated both his and Lacey's vehicles on the 26th, along with two computers from the home. Approximately 100 bags of different items were removed from the Peterson home as well, but nothing that could forensically link Scott to any crime. Because Scott was fishing in the San Francisco Bay Area, police focused much of their search there. They also searched the San Luis Reservoir and the Pittsburgh Marina. Since Scott was actively involved in the search for his wife, he visited these locations when searches were conducted. The prosecution implied at trial that Scott was surreptitiously visiting these locations since he was using different vehicles. However, since police had custody of his and Lacey's cars, 
police knew he had to either rent or borrow vehicles. Once Scott got Lacey's car back, he wound up trading it in for a pickup truck just so that he could continue to work. Of course, it was considered suspicious that he traded his missing wife's car in, but again, police still had custody of Scott's truck. He traded Lacey's vehicle out of necessity to prevent him from having to continue to rent. A detective testified at trial that Scott had asked several times for his truck to be returned. Another thing that could be taken out of context was that Scott spoke with a realtor about selling their house and also took steps to terminate his warehouse lease soon after Lacey disappeared. You should know, though, that Lacey had made inquiries with a realtor in May of 2002 about homes located about halfway between Modesto and San Diego. Lacey's brother told the police that the couple had planned on moving to the coast, and Lacey's own mother told investigators that Lacey wanted to buy a bigger home. In addition to the abduction, there had been two burglaries at Scott and Lacey's house, as well as in neighboring homes, and a vehicle had driven through the door of Scott's warehouse. Furthermore, Scott was receiving threats, and his home had been overrun with media and hostile mobs. Scott made the comment to his brother, quote, We're not staying there. There's no way if Lacey comes back that we're staying there, unquote. I have to say, I can't blame him there. Police had announced in a press conference on December 26th that Scott was fishing in the San Francisco Bay the day that Lacey went missing. I think this was a bad tactical move to do early in the investigation. They had no real idea where Lacey was or who had her. This gave the perfect opportunity for the real perpetrator to dispose of Lacey and place the blame on Scott. You may think that's far-fetched, but I actually think this is a valid theory. The bay had been searched with special dive teams and a sophisticated sonar equipment at least 27 times without locating Lacey, Connor, or any cement anchors. It's not unreasonable to think that Lacey was put into the water after some of those searches were conducted. Furthermore, ask yourself, logically, what killer would create a fake alibi for the actual scene of the crime. I'd also like to mention that the media and the public thought it was odd that Scott went fishing on Christmas Eve. However, not only was it a morning fishing trip, but Lacey's stepfather was also fishing that same morning. It can't be suspicious behavior for one and not the other. I think now is a good time to put out a challenge to all of you. Throughout your upcoming days and weeks, think of all the mundane activities that you take part in. Then, think of how those same activities might look if your loved one went missing. Laundry, house cleaning, watching TV alone with no one to vouch for you, maybe a trip to Goodwill, or painting your bedroom. I certainly hope you're not gardening or putting in a new concrete patio. What about your text messages? Do you have any past indiscretions in your life? All of those things will be used against you, even if you did nothing illegal. You don't expect your spouse will be abducted, but if it happens and you happen to be fishing, you're in big trouble. Now let's get back to Scott and Lacey. A cadaver dog did not hit on any sense in Scott's boat or in the warehouse or the house he shared with Lacey. However, the prosecution claimed that a scent trailing dog named Trimble did hit on Lacey's scent at the pier in Berkeley Marina. This was what the prosecution claimed was strong evidence against Scott. But the handler used Lacey's sunglasses to get her initial scent. 
it was known that those sunglasses were from Lacey's purse that Scott had handled, and Lacey had also been in the truck used to tow the boat to the marina. It was also discovered that Trimble failed his certification twice and failed to accurately trace human sense 75% of the time. A veteran dog handler, Ron Seitz, used his certified trailing dog, TJ, at the scene on December 28th, and his dog did not detect Lacey's scent. Seitz and TJ used Lacey's slipper as a scent article since he felt it had the least chance of cross-contamination. It's estimated that TJ had an accuracy rate of 75 to 80 percent, which is average for these dogs. Trimble failed 75 percent of the time, but TJ was accurate that same amount of time. To summarize the dog evidence, a cadaver dog and a certified trailing dog did not pick up anything, but a scent tracing dog that failed his certification allegedly followed Lacey's scent at the marina. Guess which one the jury opted to use as evidence to convict? The one that picked up Lacey's scent. Police had, by this time, searched Scott and Lacey's home and their cars, as well as Scott's warehouse. They had come up with no evidence except a scent trail traced by a dog who failed his certification twice, and a hair and rusty pliers that could belong to Lacey in a place that Lacey had been. They also had searched the San Francisco Bay numerous times and had not found Lacey, Connor, or any evidence of a crime. Unfortunately for the Roches and the Petersons, that changed on April 13, 2003. I apologize for this graphic description, and you may want to fast forward about 45 seconds. I'll give you a moment to do so. A dog walker discovered a fetus, or what was actually described as a baby in pretty good condition, on the shoreline, and then less than 24 hours later, a badly decomposed torso was also found about a mile away. It was suspected and then confirmed that this was Connor and Lacey Peterson. There was no head, no hands, no feet, and only partial arms and legs attached to the torso. She had multiple rib fractures and there was duct tape on her thighs. I'm sure that you realize duct tape is used in many abduction cases. All of Lacey's organs were missing, except for her uterus, and the investigators theorized that was due to tidal action. However, doctors at trial negated that theory, stating it really doesn't work like that. There was also conflicting testimony from medical examiners about the date of baby Connor's death. The estimate from the prosecution's witness gave a date of death of December 24th. However, the defense presented an expert who stated the first measurements were flawed, and he estimated that the earliest date of death for Connor would have been December 29th, but could have been as late as January 3rd. There was also what was described as twine, but could have been tape found knotted around the baby's neck, as well as possible tape on his ear. But get this, the coroner never saw these items. Police apparently removed the twine and tape after photographing them. In most investigations, at least as far as I know, the medical examiner removes items like this to maintain the evidentiary value and to note the results of that material on the body. Not in this case, and the defense never had the opportunity to do testing on these items. Anyway, the tape and the twine led different investigators to believe that Connor was handled outside of Lacey's body before he was placed in the bay. The baby was not as decomposed as the torso and had very little animal activity. 
There was also a pallet bag, which is a huge plastic bag designed to cover a six-foot pallet found on the shore near where Connor was found. A few feet from that bag were some metal pipes. Both the bag and the pipes had duct tape stuck to them. A police officer on scene made the observation that the bag had an odor similar to the discovered remains, and he testified about that at trial, although that information was not documented in any police reports. Matt Dalton, part of the initial defense team, theorized that if Connor was placed in that bag with the pipes, this would explain why he was in better condition with no animal activity. At trial, however, the criminalist who conducted testing stated the duct tape on the bag was not manufactured by the same company as the tape found on Lacey's thighs. So, either these items aren't connected, or they used a different and new roll of tape for Lacey and then the bag. The criminalist further stated that she did not detect an odor on the bag other than ocean smell. She also testified that some short hairs present on that pallet bag itself were never tested. It becomes another what-if, since we'll never know for sure if the pallet bag and pipes are connected to this crime. I don't know if we'll ever have a specific answer on this, but isn't it possible that whoever abducted Lacey, killed her, removed the baby, then, when they couldn't keep Connor alive, maybe they then disposed of the two bodies? There was caffeine found in Lacey's system, but she hadn't been consuming caffeine because of her pregnancy. I don't know what that caffeine means, but perhaps the abductors were trying to wake her up after they drugged her? What if they incorrectly assumed caffeine might induce her labor? Where did the caffeine come from? Why was it there? By this time, police had advertised where Scott was fishing, so the bay became a perfect spot for disposal. Anyway, the police continued to search the bay for the anchors they thought Scott made but Matt Dalton thought he may have come up with evidence pointing to an alternate theory involving the pallet bag. No anchors were ever found. As I stated last month, there were at least 11 people that saw Lacey the morning of her disappearance, most of them as she was walking the dog. Police, however, didn't seem to think these sightings were credible, as they didn't follow up on them. During the first week, police only spoke, by phone, with three of the witnesses. One of these witnesses even said they saw a pregnant woman being shoved into a van about a half a mile from their home. That witness said he made several calls to the Modesto Police Department, but was never contacted back. This was a common thing, the police not calling witnesses back. One couple driving said they saw a pregnant woman struggling with her dog, and they specifically remember, due to their worrying, if Lacey fell, it could be dangerous to the baby. When I pulled out on Miller Avenue, that's when I looked over to the right and I noticed a young lady struggling with the dog and very pregnant. The dog raised up and I just remember telling them, I hope she doesn't fall. They contacted the police and also went to the search command center to report the sighting, but no one ever called them back. Another specifically remembers that Lacey wasn't wearing a coat and remarked how cold it was for her to be walking without one. We seen this lady running a little bit down the Loma Avenue. She looked too pregnant to be out in the cold and no jacket, nothing. I told my wife, I poor lady, she must be crazy. Others remember the golden retriever, and yet another remembers seeing Lacey being yelled at by two men in the park, telling her to shut her dog up. 
Someone else reported hearing screaming coming from the restroom in the park where Lacey walked. Police either discounted these witnesses or never followed up with them. Why? Well, one detective interviewed for the A&E docuseries says he didn't believe any one of those people saw Lacey because he thought she was already dead. See, I don't remember anybody seeing Lacey walk the dog. I, because I don't think that ever occurred. I don't think she walked anything because she was dead by then. The police say they investigated everything, which is a bunch of crap. They never called and talked to us about anything. The Modesto Police Department or the investigators, they never came to ask me anything. On the day after Christmas, when I, after I talked to the motorcycle policeman and gave him my statement that I had seen the dog in the park, uh, not, nothing was followed up after that. I just figured people who knew better than I and knew more about the case had pretty much made a decision that what I had to say wasn't all that relevant. So what he's saying is that since police had tunnel vision, they didn't deem it necessary to interview all witnesses. According to the Scott Peterson Appeal website, there were potentially 24 sightings within a one-mile radius of Lacey's house. Within a three-mile radius, there were an additional seven. This is a total of 31 possible sightings. Why in the world wouldn't investigators look into each one of these sightings? These witnesses gave credence to the fact that Lacey was alive after Scott left for work that morning. I suppose a better question is, why didn't the defense call any of these witnesses to testify at trial? Scott and Lacey's neighbor, Karen, told police that at about 10.18 a.m., she saw their dog, Mackenzie, walking alone outside, but he was still wearing his leash. She led the dog into the Peterson yard and closed the gate behind her. You'll remember that Mackenzie was in the yard with his leash on when Scott returned from fishing. Now, there seems to be some discrepancy about the receipt that Karen used to determine this time. That store ran two receipts for the defense investigator within 10 minutes of each other. However, the time and date on the receipts indicated that they were run 49 minutes apart and on two different days. This raises serious questions about the accuracy of this computer register and invalidates it as a credible time source. I don't think that Karen was being deceptive. Instead, she was trying to be very helpful. Unfortunately, though, police seem to discount the rest of the witnesses' chronology because of Karen's 1018 timeline. More importantly, though, the mailman who delivers the Peterson mail stated that he noticed that Mackenzie didn't bark at him as he does every other day, and he saw the gate open. He knew he delivered the mail that day between 10.35 and 10.50 since he had to scan it into the computer upon delivery. This makes Karen's exact time of 10.18 less important, or it's possible that Mackenzie was outside the fence before their walk and then left to wander again after her abduction, or it's possible her timeline is off. It's probable that Lacey and Mackenzie were on their walk while the mailman was delivering their mail, thus making the eyewitnesses credible. Many of these witnesses knew Lacey by name or sight, and others described Lacey and what Mackenzie looked like. They should not have been discounted. The family was asking the public to call in with tips, but the police were not following up on these sightings. Furthermore, Scott's defense should have, but didn't call any of these eyewitnesses to the stand at trial. Now I want to revisit the burglary that occurred across the street from Lacey and Scott's house. 
a woman who knows the Medinas, who owned the residence that was broken into, actually saw the burglars near a tan or brown van in front of that house at about 11.40 a.m. on the 24th. We had a burglary that was reported to have occurred uh, directly across the street from the residence in question here on Christmas Eve morning. We have a witness that drove by the residence that lives in the area who saw a suspicious vehicle and some suspicious people in front of the residence, and that was at 11.40 a.m. on that Tuesday morning. The police, however, insisted that they solved the burglary, but it had occurred at 6 a.m. on the 26th. I would like to point out that the criminals themselves are who convinced the police it happened on that date. Obviously, they had motive to lie because of Lacey's disappearance. There was no proof other than their say-so that it occurred on the 26th. Meanwhile, we had an eyewitness that had reported it happened on the 24th, and let's not forget that it could not have occurred on the 26th because that street was lined with media trucks by then. My favorite part of the whole docuseries, The Murder of Lacey Peterson, was when Ted Rollins, a local reporter from KTVU, said that he was standing outside that house on the morning of the 26th and would have gone over and interviewed the burglars if they were out there. The problem with that is I was standing outside that house at 5 in the morning on December 26th. And I would have gone and interviewed the burglars if they were out there because there was nobody outside the front of that house. My head was on a swivel that morning, and there is absolutely no way a burglary took place on December 26th during those early morning hours. Nowhere to be found. When captured, one of the burglars immediately told police that their crime had nothing to do with the pregnant girl, and the investigators replied that they weren't there about her. They wanted to talk about the burglary instead. And then they never followed up on the Lacey line of questioning. The burglar brought up the pregnant girl, and the police just ignored it. Furthermore, a watch commander in a California prison called Modesto police to report a monitored phone conversation between one of their inmates and his brother, who, turns out, was a friend of one of the burglars. His brother told the inmate, that Lacey had confronted the burglars who were robbing the house and that they had threatened her as a result. This conversation was recorded by the prison. Isn't it possible, actually, isn't it probable that Lacey encountered the burglars when she returned from her walk? If Lacey saw something, in my mind, her personality would be to put her nose in it. Lacey's sister-in-law said she was the type that would confront these guys if she saw them. The burglars may have kidnapped Lacey, and Mackenzie was left to wander with his leash. The watch commander that heard this phone conversation called the Modesto police twice before he ever received a call back. Not only did Modesto Police Department not turn over this information to the defense, the tape of the phone conversation is now lost. I'm not sure if you're aware that, while there are nice neighborhoods in Modesto, California, Scott and Lacey lived only about a mile from the airport district which has the highest crime rate in the area. The city also has a high concentration of satanic cults, and the police department had a special unit focused specifically on cult activity. The official motto of Modesto is water, wealth, contentment, health. But many, including the police, use the motto murder, meth, and auto theft. It was reported that on December 23rd, there were several suspicious door knock incidents 
meaning neighborhood residents received knocks on their doors from strangers requesting some assistance or money as a cover to commit a crime. One woman actually had money snatched out of her hand with the stranger then fleeing. Six other crimes had occurred in the area between December 23rd and 24th as well. One of the scarier incidents happened about five blocks away from Lacey and Scott's house. Lourdes Avila, also eight months pregnant, like Lacey, was working in her store on the same day that Lacey went missing. She noticed two suspicious-looking men watching her for approximately 30 minutes from their car. When one approached the store, she called 911. Thankfully, the men fled, but the vehicle was registered to someone who lived just a block away from the two men involved in the burglary at the Medina's house. This is very important information, in my opinion. Something else that I feel is worth bringing up? In October, a deputy district attorney from a neighboring county had been threatened by gang members while in the late stages of her pregnancy, and she lived in the same neighborhood as Scott and Lacey. Furthermore, she also had a golden retriever, the breed of the Peterson's dog, and his name was Mackenzie as well. The gang member making the threat had previously been convicted of false imprisonment. Could Lacey have been mistaken for this deputy DA? This DA is the one who called in this tip, so she felt it was a serious enough threat. She also made sure that the police knew that she herself was not out walking on December 24th. This mistaken identity possibility is definitely a believable alternate theory. Unfortunately, there was very little follow-up on this tip after the attorney for the person who made the threat was a no-show during questioning. Also pertinent to this case, seven pregnant women went missing from 1999 to 2002 from within 80 miles of Modesto, three from Modesto itself. Evelyn Hernandez, also eight months pregnant, was found murdered with her head, hands, and feet missing, just like Lacey. And they went missing six months apart from each other, each on a satanic holy day. Both women were found on the shore of the San Francisco Bay. Nearby to where the two torsos were located, there is extensive satanic graffiti, including a painting of a pregnant woman with severed hands and feet. This area used to be used for a homeless encampment as well, until police kicked them out. Matt Dalton, a former member of the defense team, spoke with divers working on a nearby Richmond Bridge project about water current flow in that area. That diver showed Matt charts that indicated a flow from the top of the point where the paintings were toward the inner Richmond Harbor where the bodies of Lacey and Connor were found. It's a slower current than out in the San Francisco Bay, which could explain why Lacey was in the water for so long. The bridge project also disposed of their pallet bags and dumpsters where anyone could have obtained one. Remember, there was a pallet bag near where Connor was found? Unfortunately, the defense was denied the case file for the Hernandez case, except for the autopsy photos, which were eerily similar to Lacey. Prosecutor Rick DeStasso insisted at trial that Scott was the only one that could have killed Lacey. But as you can see, there were other suspects. It makes no sense to me why investigators didn't pursue the cult theory more thoroughly, since DeStasso's own boss, Jim Brazelton, prosecuted many cult members for murder. In June 2003, another satanic killing took place, this time on the summer solstice and this time in Nevada. But the perpetrator of this crime was from a town next to Berkeley, as in where Berkeley Marina is located. Again, the head, hands, and feet were removed. 
The point to me bringing all of this up? Well, it seems to me there were a lot of potential suspects other than Scott Peterson. These additional suspects could have and should have caused a jury to have reasonable doubt. In addition to the burglary I mentioned, there were also two additional police reports that involved a brown van. One of those reports was for an abduction and rape that occurred about a week or so before Lacey went missing, with the victim reporting the perpetrators talking about a Christmastime murder that she would read about in the paper. When interviewed by police, those people admitted to being in Lacey's neighborhood around Christmas. Later, defense investigators attempted to find these suspects and the van, but were unable to do so. Apparently, the occupants didn't have a permanent address, and instead, they frequently camped at different parks or encampments. Police were finally able to locate it again and advised the defense that there was duct tape, a satanic image etched in glass, and bloodstains in the van. The owners of the brown van were allegedly into satanic rituals, and they claimed the blood was from animals. So this van is a possible connection between satanic cult activity and the burglary that occurred across from Scott and Lacey's. The second police report was from a man sitting in his car on December 23rd, just two blocks from the Peterson house. Knowing there were burglaries occurring in the area, this man took it upon himself to sit out on watch looking for these intruders. He saw a suspicious brown van drive by his house three times, so he decided to follow it. After a few minutes, the driver of the van got out and confronted the man, so he fled and filed a police report. Lacey went missing the next day. An interesting fact is that Lacey tried to sell a Croton Diamond watch on eBay. Police confirmed that it didn't sell, and neither Lacey nor Scott pawned it. That watch, or one identical to it, was pawned at a nearby shop on December 31st. Police seemed to have discounted this lead since they thought the watch was broken and therefore Lacey wouldn't have been wearing it that day that she went missing. But, working or not, her watch is gone and a watch just like it was pawned in Modesto only a week after Lacey disappeared. Coincidentally, or perhaps not, the pawn ticket was signed by a Deanna Renfro, R-E-N-F-R-O. The occupants of the brown van mentioned above were the Renfro family, R-E-N-F-R-O-W. Both names are pronounced the same, but one has a W added on the end. This cannot be a happenstance, can it? Do I know these people are related to each other? No, but I feel it was a good lead that should have led to reasonable doubt. I understand that satanic cults may not have had anything to do with Lacey's death, but then again, they may have. The burglary across the street really might have been a colossal coincidence. But there again, probably not. There's a chance that Scott really did kill Lacey. But don't you think there's that chance that maybe he didn't? Police discounted all of those questions and coincidences and stuck with their theory that Scott was their guy. On the next episode, I'll talk about Scott's arrest the trial, and jury members, as well as where the case stands today. 